Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Trump's January 6th trial is set for March. Imran Khan's corruption sentence is suspended. Russia is accused of intimidating U.S. consulate staff. The U.S. turns to autonomous systems to counter China. A Chinese county offers cash rewards to young brides. Iraq executes three over a 2016 bombing. A study warns that air pollution is the greatest threat to human health. The U.S. lists 10 drugs subject to Medicare price negotiations. A live worm is found in an Australian woman's brain. And Mozart is found to potentially reduce pain in infants. In our top story, Trump's federal January 6th trial is set for a day before Super Tuesday. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, Reuters, and Financial Times. U.S. Judge Tanya Chutkin on Monday set March 4th, 2024, one day before Super Tuesday, when 15 states are slated to hold GOP primaries or caucuses as the start date for former President Donald Trump's trial on charges of conspiring to overturn the 2020 election. The Washington, D.C. district judge found that neither the April 2026 trial date proposed by the Trump camp nor the January 2nd, 2024 proposed by the U.S. Department of Justice were acceptable. This comes as special counsel Jack Smith indicted Trump on August 1st on four counts related to actions leading up to the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riots, including conspiring to defraud the U.S., obstructing an official proceeding, and conspiring against the rights of voters. Both sides estimate they would need up to six weeks each to present their cases. A federal trial is also set to start three weeks before Trump's hush money trial is scheduled to begin in Manhattan. Trump is due to stand a third trial in Florida on May 20th on federal charges related to illegally retaining classified records and trying to obstruct justice. A trial date in the Fulton County, Georgia case, the fourth criminal case he's facing, also stems from his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 election and has yet to be scheduled. While these four separate criminal cases pose logistical challenges for his campaign for another four years in the White House, poll numbers for the undisputed frontrunner in the 2024 GOP field have risen with each indictment. Well, we often feature divisive narratives on this show, and it doesn't get much more divisive than this. PJ Media brings us a pro-Trump narrative. As the eve of Super Tuesday had previously been proposed as the start date for the Georgia case against Donald Trump, it's clear that these criminal cases are part of a Biden administration plan to interfere with the 2024 election to prevent Trump from winning back the White House. Additionally, the March 4th, 2024 date makes it impossible for Trump's lawyers to provide adequate defense in this case. The New Yorker has an answer to that one with their anti-Trump narrative. The delaying strategy of Trump's legal team has gone wrong as Judge Chutkin reaffirmed the primacy of the legal system over political scheduling. He and his allies may cry election interference, but like any defendant in this country, Trump will have to make the trial date work despite his personal and professional obligations. After all, the public deserves a prompt and efficient resolution on such a serious case. And the Metaculous Prediction community brings us a statistics-based nerd narrative. They say there's a 90% chance that prediction markets will say Donald Trump is the most likely Republican nominee for president on January 1st, 2024. 
Wouldn't you say that's like uh, perfect for the expression, there's no such thing as bad publicity? But the fact that no one is surprised that another indictment or legal, you know, boondoggle. Yeah, uh, we're, we're uh, being desensitized. the numbers. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, think of the amount of money that has to be spent on these cases. On both sides, by the way. But I mean, oh, I'm assuming yeah. Trump has to pay. I'm assuming sure. somewhere from Trump's war chest, is this is being paid for, that's yeah. less money that he's funneling toward the campaign. So right. the fact and that and it keeps rising. And we're paying for the prosecution. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Great. Great. I mean, come I on. Sign up for that. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about getting your money's worth. Yeah. Right. Jeez. Pakistan's high court suspends corruption charges against Imran Khan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Aj TV, BBC News, Reuters, The Times of Israel, The News International, and The Telegraph. The Islamabad High Court on Tuesday suspended a lower court's corruption charges against Pakistan ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan, which would have seen him imprisoned for three years, though it isn't clear whether he will be immediately released as he is currently facing a myriad of other charges. The result means that Khan, 70, will be eligible as a candidate in the coming parliamentary elections. The high court also granted the politician bail, though he will face retrial over allegations he concealed assets gained through the sale of state gifts while in office. This follows a separate sedition case against Khan that was dismissed on Monday after a court ruled that the charges were without lawful authority and are of no legal effect as they weren't supported by the consent of the federal or provincial government. While government officials can keep extravagant items by paying a reduced fee, a trial court found that Khan misused his premiership to buy gifts at throwaway rates and sell them off in the open market for massive profits. Before being arrested and sentenced, Khan had managed to remain free for months, despite police efforts to keep him in custody. Protests in Pakistan, some of which were violent, were sparked when he was briefly arrested in May this year. The septuagenarian cricketer-turned-politician faces additional charges ranging from terrorism to the incitement of assaults on state institutions. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The Friday Times gives us the first spin. It's narrative A. Imran Khan and other leaders of the Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf party who are being deprived of their constitutional rights should have long been released from custody as there is no legal cause to keep them behind bars. The Islamabad High Court's decision is, at least, a positive step for Khan, who continues to face politically motivated efforts to keep him out of politics. And Geo News brings us Narrative B. These regrettable legal developments have come amid pressure on Pakistani judges from Chief Justice Umar Atta Bandial, who has put his reputation on the line to protect Khan in his legal cases. Though outrageous, this support sadly isn't surprising as the superior judiciary has long chosen to align with the former prime minister, despite strong evidence of his wrongdoing. Turning our attention to Russia as the country has been accused of intimidating the U.S. consulate staff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the official website of the United States Department of State and TASS. The U.S. Department of State on Monday accused Russia of trying to intimidate and harass U.S. employees inside Russia after a former consulate worker, a Russian citizen, pled guilty to charges of collecting information for Washington. Robert Shonov, a longtime employee of the U.S. consulate in the eastern Russian city of Vladivostok, was initially arrested in the city in May 
After an investigation and further questioning by the Federal Security Service, known as the FSB, he was charged with collaboration on a confidential basis with a foreign state or international or foreign organization. He was held at the Lefortovo prison in Moscow. On Monday, Shonov pled guilty to the charge from a courtroom inside the prison. In a video of his interrogation released by the FSB, Shonov said he was approached by U.S. embassy employees, quote, seeking information about the key developments in Russia, the special military operation, mobilization, the coming presidential election, and accession of new territories. Quote, I had to collect negative information about these events, find protest sentiment among the population, and report those, Shonov added. He also said he was tasked with finding reporters, politicians, and business people who may be loyal to the U.S., the FSB said it has summoned two U.S. diplomats in Russia in order to provide further evidence. However, in a statement from the U.S. State Department, it asserted that the allegations against Shonov are wholly without merit. The statement continued, as we have stated previously, Mr. Shonov was employed by a company contracted to provide services to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in strict compliance with Russia's laws and regulations. The statement added, we strongly protest the Russian security services attempts furthered by Russia's state-controlled media to intimidate and harass our employees. Russia is obligated under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations to treat diplomats with due respect, and we expect them to fulfill that obligation. We've got a pro-establishment narrative from the U.S. State Department. The charges against Shonov are wholly without merit. This is simply another demonstration of the Kremlin's crackdown on its own citizens and is part of Russia's attempts to intimidate and harass U.S. employees in violation of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. We counter that with a pro-Russian narrative from TASS. In filmed testimony, Shonov admitted to collecting sensitive information about Russia for the Americans. This is clearly against the laws in Russia, and the courts will deal with this case accordingly. The U.S. to counter China's military buildup with autonomous systems. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, The Drive, Defense Scoop, and Air and Space Forces magazine. U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks formally announced Monday that the Pentagon plans to field thousands of autonomous systems within two years as part of the ambitious Replicator Initiative, which is aimed at countering China in the Indo-Pacific. Speaking at the National Defense Industrial Association's Emerging Technologies Conference in Washington, D.C., she stressed that this latest strategy is vital to stay ahead, as Beijing has quantitative advantages in ships, missiles, and troops. While America will still leverage more high-end weapons systems, the Replicator Initiative is reportedly designed to use cheaper and smarter platforms that are easy to update and put fewer humans in harm's way. Even though specifics were not revealed, Hicks claimed that the Pentagon would use artificial intelligence and autonomous systems responsibly and ethically. Production and delivery of the autonomous systems are projected for the next 18 to 24 months. The initiative is also intended to serve as a template for similar U.S. operations in the future. Scott, thanks for those facts. We begin our round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from the conversation. The Pentagon is putting the development of autonomous weapon systems in full gear. This technology keeps soldiers out of harm's way by removing them from the battlefield while allowing military decisions to be made much faster, almost at superhuman speed, thus improving defensive capabilities. The future of warfare is here and will help deter aggression, such as the PRC actions toward America and its allies. 
And we have an establishment critical narrative from StopKillerRobots.org. Autonomous weapon systems lower the threshold of war by reducing perceived risks and making conflict easier to enter into. Decisions over life and death must always remain in human hands to prevent digital dehumanization and the automation of death. It's imperative to establish boundaries between what is acceptable and what is unacceptable, and these systems must be rejected. We have a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's an 11% chance that the United States will sign a treaty on the prohibition of lethal autonomous weapon systems before the year 2031. This sounds a little like posturing to me. Uh, did, did, you, did you ever see that show BattleBots? Where, yes, where that's what I'm saying. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. It, we're, we're just going to be a big BattleBot planet at some point. You know what? I, I could get into that. <laughs> can, can I gamble on it? That's what I need to know. <laughs> that, it, that's the it, deal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Well, will Vegas, will Vegas accept it? That's the yeah. That's going to be the what pivotal. I need to know. Yeah, and the gambling addict narrative comes from <laughs> Bodog.com. Turning our attention back to China, as a PRC county is offering cash to young married couples. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Mint, NBC, Guardian, Reuters, The Telegraph, and Global Times. Amid concerns over declining birth rates and marriage registrations, officials in eastern China's Shangsheng County are offering a 1,000 won or 137 U.S. dollar reward to young married couples if the bride is 25 years old or younger. The county, located in the eastern province of Zhejiang, announced the policy on its official WeChat account. It stipulated that the reward only applies to couples marrying for the first time and is intended to promote, quote, age-appropriate marriage and childbearing. The county's program also seeks to ease the high costs of raising children in China by providing childcare, fertility, and education subsidies to couples who have children. China's legal age for marriage is 22 for men and 20 for women, and the country has seen a drastic drop in its marriage rate over the last 35 years. China had 800,000 fewer marriages in 2022 compared to 2021, with its total of 6.8 million being the lowest since 1986. The decline in marriages has coincided with a steeply decreasing birth rate. China's birth rate fell to a record low of 1.09 per woman in 2022, with government officials trying to increase the number to offset the demographic consequences of its aging population. China allowed women to have up to three children in 2021, However, birth rates continued to trend downward, leading many areas to offer various subsidies and rewards for couples with children. Thanks, Eric. Project Syndicate brings us the anti-China narrative. China created its current demographic disaster with its failed family policies over the last four decades and is now overcompensating for its mistakes. For nearly 40 years, China forced a birth rate that was half of the replacement level. Yet Chinese officials seem to be caught off guard that decades later the PRC has an aging population and low birth rates. China is nearing catastrophe as its demographic pyramid becomes inverted. China did too little too late to avoid this crisis. We counter that with a pro-China narrative coming from South China Morning Post. While all of the focus is on China's rise in the last 40 years, many are ignoring China's history of vast population fluctuation. Any civilization that is thousands of years old will have times of population growth and decline. China still has more than a billion people, and it will endure strongly, 
regardless of whether the birth rate ticks up a bit or not in short-term cycles. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus says there's a 50% chance that China's fertility rate will be at least 1.15 births per woman in 2031. And news from the Middle East as Iraq executes three over a 2016 Islamic State group bombing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by I-24 News, Barron's, BBC News, Al Jazeera, and Channel News Asia. Iraq has reportedly hanged three people convicted for a 2016 bombing that was claimed by the Islamic State group. The bombing, which killed more than 320 people in a Baghdad shopping district, was one of the deadliest terrorist attacks globally since the September 11, 2001 attacks on the U.S. The car bombing on July 3, 2016 targeted a busy shopping area ahead of the Eid al-Fitr festival, ending the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. The initial blast claimed a limited number of lives, but the resulting fire spread and trapped victims inside a shopping center that lacked emergency exits. Iraqi Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani's office said that the executions were carried out Sunday or Monday, but did not name those executed. Government sources have said that Ghazwan al-Zabeh, who is said to be the IS mastermind behind the attack, was among those executed. The UN estimated in March that IS still has 5,000 to 7,000 members and supporters spread across Iraq and bordering Syria, roughly half of whom are fighters. Some remaining cells affiliated with IS continue to target security forces and civilians in both countries. But the UN reports the group has been significantly diminished by sustained counterterrorism operations. IS overran large territories in northern and western Iraq in 2014 and advanced on Baghdad shortly after. At the time of the bombing in 2016, Iraqi forces had regained significant territory and the bombing was seen as a reaction by IS. Scott, thanks for the facts. We begin our round of spins with Narrative A coming from Crime Museum. While a death penalty is highly contested, a serious punishment for heinous crimes like terrorism is still necessary. Terrorists like those who perpetrated the bombing in Baghdad in 2016 are among the most brutal and violent criminals, and their targeting of civilian men, women, and children cannot be left unpunished. And the Death Penalty Information Center brings us Narrative B. The death penalty is not an effective deterrent against terrorism. The execution of terrorists goes beyond retribution or perceived justice and may create more issues than life in prison would. By killing these criminals, Iraq risks turning them into martyrs that can be used for the public relations and fundraising strategies of extremist groups. According to a recent study, air pollution is the greatest external threat to global health. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Air Quality Life Index, CBS, Reuters, Al Jazeera, Euronews, and The Week. According to a study published by the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago on Tuesday, air pollution is the world's greatest external risk to human health. The study found that while tobacco use reduces global life expectancy by 2.2 years, fine particulate pollution, PM2.5, cuts it by 2.3 years, or a combined 17.8 billion life years for the global population. The situation is worse in South Asia, where the researchers claimed that increasing air pollution can cut a person's life expectancy by more than five years. The Institute's latest Air Quality Life Index suggests South Asia as one of the world's most polluted regions, accounts for more than half of the total life years lost globally to pollution. 
According to World Health Organization data, 36% of lung cancers, 34% of strokes, and 27% of heart diseases are linked to fine particulate pollution, which usually comes from vehicle and industrial emissions. Meanwhile, the researchers revealed that China successfully reduced air pollution levels by 42.3% between 2013 and 2021. Thanks, Eric. The Guardian brings us Narrative A. Multiple studies have shown that air pollution is more dangerous to global health than smoking, alcohol, or malnutrition. Yet the percentage of funding set aside to confront the existential threat is minuscule. Just six countries suffer from three-quarters of the world's air pollution impact. Governments must unite to reduce global disparities in the fight against air pollution. We have a Narrative B coming from Inquirer. While air quality has improved over the last few decades in Europe, the growing threat of wildfires caused by rising temperatures linked to climate change is causing spikes in air pollution from the western U.S. to Latin America and Southeast Asia. We must devote more resources to tackle global warming as a root cause of this threat. Emetaculus brings us another nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that the average annual level of PM2.5 in Beijing will be at least 40 in 2023. The U.S. lists its first 10 drugs for Medicare negotiations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, and Reuters. On Tuesday, U.S. President Joe Biden's administration released its list of the first 10 prescription medicines that will enter the first-ever price negotiations between the nation's Medicare program and Big Pharma. Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, allows the U.S. government to negotiate drug prices through the Medicare program. Historically, pharmaceutical companies have been unregulated in the price they could charge for life-saving medications. The drugs selected include Bristol-Myers Squibb's Eliquis, a medication that reduces stroke risk, AstraZeneca's Varziga, a drug used for type 2 diabetes treatment, Novo Nordisk's Insulins, Fiosp and Novolog, and Entresto, Novortis's drug for the treatment of heart failure, among others. According to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the 10 named drugs are among the costliest under Medicare Part D, which is made up of prescription medications filled by seniors at retail pharmacies, with the listed drugs making up 20% of its costs from June 1, 2022 to May 31, 2023. The pharmaceutical companies behind the drugs selected will have to sign on to negotiation agreements by October 1st, and negotiations will conclude by the end of August 2024. If a company decides to forego negotiations, it could face a tax penalty, resulting in up to 95% of the drug's U.S. sales. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from Center for American Progress. Republicans have led an unconscionable effort to deny Medicare the right to negotiate drug prices. President Biden stepped in with the Inflation Reduction Act, which will not only help millions of elderly and marginalized Americans afford crucial medicines, but will also decrease the federal deficit for years to come. This is a win for everyone. And The Federalist brings us the Republican narrative. The only thing this provision will achieve is years of litigation as companies rightfully defend themselves against this attack. This development will force drug makers to decide between earning enough in sales to fund their research, development, and operations, and investing in new cutting-edge life-saving drugs as the government threatens them with financial ruin if they don't comply. Where do you stand on this, Eric? The money is an incentive for innovation, or are they gouging the public? Which one is it? I 
I think they're gouging the public because some of these drugs, they really are life-saving, crucial drugs. Like if you find a roundworm in your brain, there's got to be a drug that helps oh something like that. Oh a live roundworm has been found in an Australian woman's brain. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euronews, BBC News, Guardian, Al Jazeera, and NBC. In a medical first, a neurosurgeon performing a biopsy on an Australian woman last year pulled an 8-centimeter or 3.15-inch living parasitic worm from her brain, according to findings published in the Emerging Infectious Diseases Journal. The patient, a 64-year-old woman, had complained of symptoms such as stomach pain, night sweats, and a cough, later progressing to forgetfulness and depression. A brain scan revealed what appeared to be an atypical lesion on the right frontal lobe of her brain. During the biopsy, neurosurgeon Dr. Harry Priabandi pulled out a living roundworm from the woman's brain. This once-in-a-career finding spurred doctors to find the cause of the unique infection, with specialists determining it was an Ophidoscorus rubertsi roundworm. The Ophidoscorus rubertsi is typically found in marsupials that are then consumed by pythons who spread the parasites through their feces. It's believed the woman became infected by the roundworm by collecting and cooking native grasses that are a habitat for pythons. This is the first observed case of the Ophidoscorus rubertsi in humans, as it's believed to have spread from her liver, lungs, and finally to her brain. The doctors warn that human encroachment on animal habitats can increase the risk of animal-to-human or zoonotic transmission. The doctors warn that 30 new types of infections have emerged in the last three decades, with 75% of them being transmitted via zoonosis. As the human population grows and animal habitats shrink, the world needs to be vigilant against new types of infections, the team says. Medical Life Sciences News brings us Narrative A. As we emerge from the COVID pandemic, the world needs to be aware of a new frontier of infectious diseases being driven by population growth and climate change. Research shows that an acceleration of climate change will cause more parasites to spill over into the human population. Unless we take bold action to mitigate environmental damage, novel infections like this will become more common. Narrative B comes from Manga Bay Environmental News. While diseases that travel from animals to humans are on the rise, science will always be able to provide us with new ways of mitigating the damage. For instance, research done in Africa has found that ants can house a multitude of viral sequences unknown to science. It's just as often that nature poses a problem as it does a solution, and the intense focus on zoonosis in the aftermath of COVID could leave us well prepared. And our final story is a happier one. Mozart may be a painkiller for newborns. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Medical Express, The Guardian, Science Magazine, Daily Mail, Cymex, and Science Alert. According to a study published in Pediatric Research, playing a Mozart lullaby may help reduce pain in infants receiving routine heel prick blood tests. The study's randomized and blinded clinical trial involved 100 infants undergoing routine screening between April 2019 and February 2020 in New York City. While 54 infants listened to an instrumental Mozart lullaby for 20 minutes before and during the jabs and five minutes afterward, the remaining weren't exposed to music. On average, the infants were two days old and born at 39 weeks. Newborns who didn't listen to Mozart experienced pain scores of 7, which is the maximum, during the procedure, 5.5 one minute later and 2 two minutes later. 
In contrast, infants exposed to Mozart's lullaby felt a pain score of four during the heel prick and zero at one minute after the procedure. Pain levels were determined according to the infant's facial expressions, degree of crying, breathing patterns, limb movements, and level of alertness. The researchers concluded that music such as Mozart's could be used as an easy, reproducible, and inexpensive tool for pain relief in minor procedures for newborns. Such an interesting story. Thank you for those facts, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it's coming from Harvard Health. While humans being as complex as they are, music can provide a clear and immediate impact on well-being in a variety of circumstances. Music therapy is an established healthcare profession, and while there may be no singular solution, the tool can be a powerful instrument for positive change that demands greater attention within medical circles. And Oxford University Press brings us Narrative B. There are a variety of potential risks that music therapy may pose. While containing the ability to do good, different musical choices may provide complicated and dangerous responses in each unique individual. Certain music may cause more good than bad, and safety and careful consideration must remain a priority in music therapy. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Want more information about the Verity Podcast? Visit our website, verity.news. You can also download the Verity Podcast app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Mm-hmm.